0: us grasp the truth a little bit more clearly or how it might apply. That story illustrates the truth. That's what Jesus is doing in Luke chapter 15. He's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and all of Luke 15 is one parable. It's broken up into three different parts, and we've talked about the lost sheep and how it represents the Lord Jesus Christ, how he seeks to save that which was lost, and there's rejoicing in heaven over a sinner that comes to repentance. We've talked about the lost coin and how it's like the Holy Spirit of God that's searching uh, for, uh, and when it finds the soul, that it's able to be used for its per- particular purpose. And that's what our life is, is to be used for the Lord as well. And, and we're in the middle of talking about this last portion, the parable of the parable with the prodigal son, as he's been called. And that's where we've been in Luke chapter 15. And Jesus is still illustrating one central truth, and that central truth is that uh, there is rejoicing when one sinner comes to repentance. The value of one. The central truth is that all men need to come to a place of repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. So we have to keep that in mind as we are walking through even this section. We're going to read verses 11 through 24, some of the verses we've already covered, but it's all part of uh, the context, so we need to understand it again as we get into the, our text verses this morning. The Bible says in verse 11, And he said, A certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he said, or he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said... How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion And ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto the father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found And they began to be merry. Now, last week we considered the first section in there concerning the son himself. And we considered the rebelliousness of this son. And how, first of all, he showed great dishonor to his father or for his father. In that culture, when the son like this would demand of his father the portion of his inheritance and he would demand it early, what he was basically saying, it was basically the same thing as, Dad, I wish that you were dead. I wish that you didn't have any part in my life, and I want what is mine. Now, as the second son, as the younger son, he was only entitled to maybe a third of the father's wealth. And basically, he was trading just a small pittance for the ability to have control of his own life. It was something of great dishonor. Uh, He wouldn't receive that inheritance until his father was dead and passed on. So for him to demand it in that culture was saying, Dad, I want you to be dead. I wish you were not in my life. And we talked about how that's how people, sinful people live in regards to God. They don't want God's control in their life. They don't want anything to do with God. They want the blessings that God provides. They want to live their life, but they don't want God's control in their life. He wanted his own freedom with no influence from his father anymore. And we show that that's a picture of rebellious humanity before a holy God, not wanting God's influence, rebelling against him and his laws and his commands. Secondly, we talked about the fact that he was unaware of the shame that he brought to himself and to his family, or else he didn't care about the shame. In that culture where honor is so important and The fifth commandment, and remember, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, those who kept the law of Moses. The fifth commandment says to honor your father and mother. In that culture where honor was so important and following the law of Moses was a governing law, this young man's actions would have been worse than just scandalous. It would have been worse than just a young son rebelling. Any son in that culture who made such a brazen demand could expect to be written off as dead to the father and to the family. You do this, and you're dead to me. That's how that culture would have operated. And technically, the law of Moses would prescribe death for such rebellious children. And Deuteronomy chapter 21, we'll look at that maybe a little bit later, it talks about uh, what what the law of Moses would, was, would prescribe for that kind of rebellion. One who has shown such disdain for his father. We need to bear in mind that this son did not have a hurtful, unloving father. He didn't live in a situation where he was abused and unloved. In fact, The father would represent the perfect kind of father-son relationship that one ought to have. The point is, is that the son didn't care. He didn't care about the shame that he brought to himself. He didn't care about the shame that he would have brought to his father in that community. And sadly for the father, there was nothing that he could do to cover or remove that shame short of publicly disowning his own son They would have done that in that culture. In fact, to demonstrate that he's dead to me and to disown him publicly, they would have some sort of a funeral to demonstrate that he was dead to the family, even though he was physically still alive. That's how that culture would have operated. So it was more than just scandalous. It was something that brought great dishonor, but he didn't care about the shame he brought to his father And that is precisely having a funeral or publicly disowning would have been precisely what those in a village like that in those days would have expected. It's what the Pharisees who were listening to Jesus tell this story. It's what they would have been thinking. Surely this father would react this way because of such a rebellious son. Any self-respecting father in that culture would naturally feel that he had to disgrace his son publicly in order to... Maintain honor. But what does Jesus say was actually the response of the Father? In verse uh, 20, the Bible says, And he arose and came to his Father, but when he was yet a great way off, his Father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The father's actions here, which, by the way, that's what we're going to really talk about, dive into these verses, and explore the father and his actions and how it represents God towards sinful men. The father's actions here demonstrate that he was truly a loving father. He wasn't an unloving father who the son lived in an abusive type relationship, he wasn't a tyrant. In fact, this father was willing to endure the pain of spurned affections and public humiliation rather than to disown his own son. He was willing to suffer for the sake of his son. He voluntarily suffered what is arguably the most painful personal agony one could ever experience. The grief of tender love for one and that is completely rejected. You ever felt rejection? You love someone or something so much, but they don't return it? And you feel the rejection? That's arguably one of the the most painful personal agonies one could experience. That was the response of this father. The father's love for this boy must have been profound. And the greater the love, the greater the pain when the love is rejected. And the application becomes very vivid and very clear for us when we think in these terms because this is especially amazing when we remind ourselves that Jesus is giving an illustration of his own love for sinners. And because Jesus is God in human flesh, we need to understand that the reaction of the prodigal's father depicts for us the love that Jehovah God has, even for rebellious humanity. And although God is sovereign, and God has every right, and he is just uh, to, to completely disown, destroy rebellious humanity, that's not how God operates God doesn't destroy sinners in an instant. In that culture, a son who would have come home like this, every right the father had to not even give him a face-to-face meeting, every right he had to completely disown him for what he did. But that's not what the father did. And God does not do that. He doesn't operate that with you and me. When he has every right to destroy the sinner in an instant, God nevertheless extends mercy, generous measures of mercy, and loving kindness, and goodwill, and long-suffering toward sinful men. And like the Father in this parable, rather than summarily disowning or destroying the sinner as quickly as possible, God shows extreme forbearance and love. And that's where we're going to go today with this parable. And I want you to keep in mind that Jesus is telling this parable chiefly for the benefit of the scribes and Pharisees. Verses 1 and 2 tells us that the people drew near the publicans and the sinners to hear Jesus. And then verse two says, "And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured saying, "This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them." And it was at that point that Jesus gives this parable to illustrate a truth, the truth of how God receives people. And so we need to keep it in mind that Jesus is telling this parable chiefly for the benefit of the scribes and Pharisees, Surely the scribes and Pharisees were thinking culturally, and surely they expected in the story that Jesus is giving, surely they expected the father to drop the hammer and drop it hard on this rebellious son. Because his honor had been turned to shame by this son's rebellion. And no doubt in their minds, they agreed with the thoughts of the boy what were the thoughts of the boy that i'm not worthy to be your son and i'll go back and i'll apologize and i'll repent to my father and and the and i'll just ask if i could possibly just be a servant in his house because and i'll try to repay this debt that i owe to my father surely that's how they're thinking That he ought to go back. He ought to humble himself. He ought to confess his wrong. He ought to renounce all rights to his position as a son. In fact, they were probably thinking if he was even granted the opportunity to be a servant, even that would be more mercy on the part of the father than the boy ever deserved. As far as the Pharisees were concerned, the prodigal son was already dead. To his father. And even if he had the chance to be a servant, he wouldn't receive instant forgiveness. Surely, no. He would have a lifetime of labor shouldering this futile burden of trying to repay his debt to the father for the rest of his life. That's how they were thinking. That's how what we need to keep in mind as we start to unpack these verses. And so, what happens next in the story? would have been a seismic jolt to the Pharisees' worldview and how they operated. And so I want us to see, because Jesus is making a point to them, about how God himself operates towards sinful men. What is it that the prodigal found when he came home to his father? Let's pray and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, I pray that you... Lord, I pray that you'd help us to get a more clear view of God. How you love people. How you love my own soul. And as this morning, as we read, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Lord, help us to see you in greater measure. And to see your love for mankind. To see how merciful and gracious you are. And Lord, again, how undeserving we are to experience it. Lord, thank you for the word of God, and we thank you for its description of you. We thank you for Jesus Christ. And Lord, even thank you for this parable that Jesus gave this story to illustrate. A truth concerning God. And so, Lord, would you open our eyes afresh and anew again today concerning who you are. And may the truth of thy word penetrate and impact the hearts of men today. And we pray for your spirit to give control, And to have free course to work amongst us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is it that the prodigal son found when he came home? He was expecting probably the cultural response. He found himself in this situation. He threw himself completely on the mercy of his father. And he said, I'll go home. And I'll say to my father with a repentant heart, I've done you wrong. I've sinned against you, against heaven. I'm not worthy to be your son. If I could just be a servant, I'll repay this debt for the rest of my life. Surely that's what he was thinking. He was rehearsing this over and over again on his journey home, no doubt. And so what does the Bible tell us that he found instead of that kind of response. Well, let's look again in our text, and, he, and we'll start in verse 18. I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto the father, I have sinned against heaven in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The first thing that we see that the son found when he came home was he found his father's forgiveness. As this young man headed home, He didn't know what he might find there. And in that culture of honor, like we were talking about, especially in a situation... Like this, if the father simply refused to even meet him or see him face to face, it would have been completely understandable and even expected in that culture. So as the Pharisees are listening to Jesus speak, no doubt their mind is just completely blown at the fact that instead of responding in a way that you've offended me, I'm not even going to meet you face to face, I'm still the father. Instead of that kind of response, what he found was forgiveness instead And even if he was granted a meeting, surely then there would have been at least public humiliation first so that all would see that he's the guilty party, he's the one who has done this thing, and his repentance, well, it's okay, we'll accept it, but it's not going to be instant repentance. You've got to pay for what you did. What he found was something incredible. What he found was something amazing. He actually found a father, instead of one who was vindictive, instead of one who was more concerned about his own honor, he found a father who had actually been longing and looking for his son to come home. He found a father who was filled with love and compassion. And grace, that word compassion in this text, it's a word that's a pretty strong word. And basically, it talks about a gut feeling. That's what it kind of means. But it has this, it carries this meaning of of something that is inside of the father, that he's just so moved on the inside with emotion and with feeling for his son that it, it compels him to move and to act. That's what he found. He found grace, and he was received with love. The father was eager. The father was eager to forgive at the very first sign of repentance. The father wouldn't even allow the son to finish his speech. You know what is the one that he rehearsed? I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. If you'll just make me as a hired servant, then, then, then I'll live and serve you. That was what he was rehearsing. The son got so far as to say, I am no more worthy to be called thy son. And the father interrupted him and didn't even let him finish his speech. He had already restored him and forgave him. Notice how the Bible says that the father... Saw him when he was a great way off. You notice that? He arose, came to his father. In verse 20, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. What does that tell us about the heart of this father toward his boy? That he was eagerly looking, that he was searching that he was ready. You can imagine that this father would have every day he would have gone out and he would have scanned the horizon many times in the day, repeatedly going and looking for signs of his son's return. And so when he was a great way off, his father saw him and recognized him. I want you to notice a few things about this here. The Bible says the father saw him when he was a great way off. He had compassion. I told you what that word means. And then the Bible says that he ran. He ran. You think, that's just a small detail in the middle of this story that Jesus is is telling here. But make no mistake, the father running for the son is very significant. And the reason it's significant is because in that culture, it was considered undignified and even shameful for a man to run. Running was for little boys. Running was for the immature, not in a dignified, honor-filled culture. It was was something undignified and even shameful for a man to run. That's what the Pharisees would have been thinking. And and Jesus telling the story that the father is running to the son, it would have brought more shame upon the father. They're already thinking, what in the world? This wasn't just a quickened pace either. The word that is used here in the text is a word that speaks of a sprinter who's in a competition. This father was not concerned about cultural norms. He wasn't concerned about shame for himself. What we find is a father who would have gathered up his robes and he would have taken off like a sprinter in a race to get to his son. He didn't care about how undignified it was. You say, well, that's just a wonderful part of the story then. I mean, it's like, This happy reunion of a father and a son together. Oh, my friend, it goes so much deeper than that. Because the Bible tells us very clearly what the law would have demanded for a rebellious son. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 21. And I want you to make a note here because you might ask the question, well, why why did the father run to the son then, because he was just so happy to see his son? Surely he was happy to see his son. He was ready to forgive. But there's more to it than that. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, in verse 18, If a man have a stubborn and rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him will not hearken unto them, then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him and bring him out unto the elders of the city and unto the gate of his place. It's very public. And they shall say unto the elders of the city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of his city shall stone him with stones, that he die. So shalt thou put evil away from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. This, technically, was the law or the response to such a rebellious son. And the father would bring him out very publicly and the men of the city would stone him that he die. The point is, is that the law actually demanded death for this boy. The father, on the other hand, wanted to extend mercy to his son. And literally him running to meet his son was him positioning himself between his son and the scorn that he would have received from others. He was putting himself in the way that if, 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 if the, the, the scorn came from them of the city, they would have had to stone the Father too. And what I'm saying is, it's a picture of God towards sinful men. God runs to meet the sinner to quickly extend mercy and put him away from danger. God literally interposes himself between us and God's wrath. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, let me read it to you. If you can get there, go ahead. But 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, the Bible says. That Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. That word, propitiation, it means an appeasement of God's wrath. And the point is, is that Jesus took the wrath of God on himself so that you and I don't have to experience the judgment of God. Listen, if the neighbors and those of the city had cast stones at this boy, they would have had to strike the father first. And it's a fitting picture of Jesus Christ himself, who humbled himself to seek and to save that which was lost. And then after that, he went and endured the cross, despising the shame, the Bible says. You know what despising the shame means? It means that the shame was nothing to him. The shame of the cross was nothing to Jesus Christ. And it was who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. He despised the shame. It was nothing to him because of the joy that was set before him. What was the joy? The salvation of sinful men. He bore everything for our sake in our stead. That's exactly what the Father was doing. It's the heart of God toward sinful men. At the very first sign of repentance, he's eager and ready to forgive. And he puts himself, interposes himself between God's wrath and us because of his great love. What a picture of how God feels toward sinful men. And then the Bible says in our text that the Father kissed him, he ran. And he fell on his neck and he kissed him. The verb kissed here, it's in the present tense. So it's talking about not just one kiss. It's talking about continual kissing. And he fell on his neck and he kissed him. And we think, okay, this is a father who just just is so glad to see his son. But again, it goes deeper than that. Remember where this son was. This is a Jewish culture we're talking about here, right? And in the Jewish culture, where the son was and what he had been doing would have defiled him. It would have made him unclean. He's in the, he's in the, in the slop with the pigs, the swine. And here the father has no regard for the fact that he is unclean, either ceremonially Or physically, he's dirty and he's in tatters and he's been in the pig slop. He's not clean. But the father comes to him and he was uh, uh, compassionate towards him. The son was ceremonially unclean. He was physically unclean. And in spite of the smell, in spite of the filth, in spite of the hurt, in spite of the pain and the loss, this father would have just buried his head in the neck of his son and kissed him over and over and over again. He would have embraced him with a massive hug. That was the ultimate sign of acceptance by the father. And the application is this, this friend is the heart of God toward people. You know, what? sometimes people think that they can't be saved because I'm so bad and I've lived such a life that is so messed up and I've done some horrible, horrible things. How could I possibly have favor with God? But what a beautiful picture this is of the forgiveness that is offered by God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what the typical person who's made a mess of their life? They want out of that. They want out of the mess that they've made. And their first instinct is to devise a plan. And their plan is something like this. I'm going to do some religious things to try to work off this guilt that I feel. I'm going to try to reform myself. I'm going to try to change some things to get out of this mess that I've made. But you know, a plan like that will never, ever work. A plan like that will never succeed because the debt is too great to repay. The sinner is helpless to change himself. He's fallen. He can't alter that fact that he's messed it up, that that he's fallen and he's corrupt and his heart is wicked. You can't change it. And so the Savior comes along and intercepts him. He's already taken that shame. He's already taken that abuse on himself. He's already suffered and paid the price of the guilt of sin in full. And he's paid it by himself. And, the, and, and God and it will embrace the repentant sinner who's come with a heart that says, I'm sorry that I've sinned against you, and he grants to him complete forgiveness, and he reconciles him to God, and it doesn't matter how dirty and how bad you have been. That's the heart of God. What did he find when he came to his father? He found forgiveness. Forgiveness for all the wrong And all of the hurt. And aren't you so glad that this is the heart of God toward you and me? Even after we've been saved, we still fail. We still sin. But 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. Oh, we need that forgiveness, don't we? What an amazing picture that Jesus is painting here for these Pharisees who are all about doing, doing, doing the religious works to try to find favor with God. You can't. Not only did he find forgiveness, but secondly, we find that he found some restoration. Look at verse 22, go back to Luke 15. He found forgiveness, but he also found restoration. In verse 22, i got to get there myself. The Bible says, But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. I want you to notice again that the father didn't even let the boy finish his confession that he had been rehearsing all this time. He didn't even let the boy ask him if he could be a servant. He got one sentence in. I've sinned against you and against heaven. And so when the boy came home, he had everything that he had thrown away What he finds is that he had everything restored to him, but not because he had done something to merit favor. It was simply on the good graces of his father. By the time he finished his first sentence, the father had already reinstated him as his beloved son. And the celebration was underway. Now let's break this down a little bit and dig a little bit deeper here. And I'll make an application or two here, and then we're going to look at some very specific things. But the application is this. The prodigal's unfinished confession here may seem, again, like one of these subtle little details in the parable. But it was making a not-so-subtle point to the Pharisees and for their benefit. That's why Jesus is saying it. There was no way that the Pharisees would have failed to notice one glaring reality in Jesus' description of the Father's eagerness to forgive. The thing that they would not have misunderstood and they would not have failed to notice is that this boy had done nothing whatsoever to atone for his sin. They were fully aware. And Jesus was making a very not-so-subtle point the Pharisees and even though the son did nothing to make atonement for his sin the father's forgiveness was still full and it was still lavish and there was nothing that was holding it back it is true that sin must be paid for don't make the mistake that or imagine for a minute that when God forgives sin he just looks the other way and just sweeps it under the rug as if it's never happened. God doesn't operate that. We need to remember that the main point that Jesus is making here was for the Pharisees' benefit. He was addressing their faulty ideas concerning God. They found and thought that God found joy in their self-righteous efforts rather than mercy and the forgiveness of sins. In their theology, they were completely lacking any sense of the grace of God. And so they could not see how in the world a sinner could stand before God forgiven without a lifetime of effort and religious work. How did they find favor with God? Oh, we've got to keep the law. We've got to do this. And there's just penalties for breaking the law and so on. That was their theology. And they had no sense of the grace of God in forgiveness. What is grace? unmerited favor. That's why the Pharisees operated the way that they did, even in their culture. It wasn't even just keeping the law of Moses. They even overlaid the Old Testament law with their own elaborate systems of human traditions, man-made rules, and useless ceremonies, and all of those things brought, in their mind, good standing with God. I could tell you about some of the ridiculousness of the Pharisees' rules and laws. And all of those things made them righteous. And what they could not understand and what they thought in their mind was they were convinced that sinners needed to do good works to help atone for their own sin. In this parable that Jesus gives, this boy He didn't even have a chance to finish his sentence. And the father had already restored him completely and fully back to his sonship. He didn't do a thing. Now we need to understand we cannot atone for our own sin. We need a substitute. In fact, even for their culture, they should have understood this because they had the Old Testament and they supposedly were followers of the law. The dominant picture of atonement in the Old Testament is that of an innocent substitute whose blood was shed on behalf of the sinner. That was the dominant picture in the Old Testament. That's what all the bloody sacrifices were about. Here is a substitute who was sent away, who was done on behalf of the sinner. It pictured what would one day happen that the Lamb of God, who was Jesus Christ, whose blood would be shed to take away the sin of the world. Hebrews 9.22 says, Almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. And Hebrews ten is talking about Jesus Christ. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every high priest standeth daily, Ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. All of the Old Testament sacrifices were, and by the way, atonement is an Old Testament word, it's a rolling over. But Jesus Christ. Was, 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 the, was the new and the living way. Jesus Christ was the spotless Lamb of God, and the Bible says in Hebrews that He offered one sacrifice of Himself forever to take away the sin of the world. The blood of bulls and of goats, they could never take away sin. And my point in telling you all of this is that Jesus was confronting the heart of the Pharisees and their insistence that sinners need to perform certain works in order to earn forgiveness with God. Well, the parable that Jesus tells debunks that idea. It illustrates instead the simple truth of how and why repentant faith is the only means by which any sinner can ever find justification with God. Forgiveness is not a reward for merits that we earn by our good works. Forgiveness is a gift of God. Romans 4 and verse 2 says, For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. wasn't something Abraham did Through good works, it was his faith, his belief in God. So, here we find that not only did the son find forgiveness, but he found restoration. What did the prodigal receive in this restoration? Let's go back and look in Luke 15. In verse 22 again, The father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. These are actually significant things that meant something, even in that culture. The Bible says that the father says, bring forth the best robe and put it on him. Why was that significant? Because it signifies purity here. Where did the boy come from? He came from the pig slop. He came from being in want. He was tattered and dirty in his clothes. Here he stands in rags before the father, but the robe would cover all the stains and all the dirt of the pig pen. The robe erased all the visible signs of this boy's sinful past. But you know what we receive in salvation? When we come to the Lord in a repentant heart, not working for our favor with God, but with a repentant heart toward God, you know what we receive in salvation? We receive a robe of righteousness. Amen? It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ it is imputed to us by the Father himself and when I repent of my sin God clothes me and covers me with this robe of righteousness which is the righteousness of Christ and so when the Father looks at me he doesn't see my past Oh he sees the righteousness of his son and I'm pure and I'm clean in the Father's eyes. Oh, and when the devil comes and he starts accusing me of my sin, you see that? You see what Demlo did there again? You see that? Jesus Christ says, it's under the blood, under the blood of the Lamb, holy and righteous before God, I stand because of the righteousness of his Son. I don't have any of my own. I get that robe that covers the guilt of my past. Amen. Amen? He's pure. And it was because of the graciousness of his father. All the dirt, all the filth of his life, it was gone. And all the dirt and all the filth of my own life and of my sin, it's forever washed away from me." What a gracious Father. And how dare we forget what we once were and come to a place where I feel like I'm pretty righteous, I feel like I'm pretty good, got this Christian life thing down. In fact, I can stand in judgment of other people because I'm righteous. May we never forget the pig pen that God saved us from. Also, we see here that the Father said, "Bring not only the robe, but he says, put it, "Bring forth the robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand." The ring was a symbol or a, 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 yeah, it was a symbol of privilege. That's what the ring was. After the robe was put on him, the father says, put the ring on his hand. And this this ring symbolized sonship. And the one that had the ring, the one that had the signet, that one had access actually to all that belonged to the father. The one who had the father's ring was in position of great authority and privilege. And do you know that when a sinner comes to a place of repentance of their sin, they're given the privilege of being recognized as one of God's sons. In 1 John chapter 3, you can turn over there. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. The first word of chapter 3 is Behold. I'll let you get there. Behold. The word basically means, wow. Pay attention, okay? That's what the word means. Behold. Whoa, wow. And note what he says. What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, Now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath his hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Behold, what manner of love is this, that we should be called the sons of God? I am not worthy. It's amazing love. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but when he shall appear, we're going to be like him. And we're going to look like him, for we shall see him as he is. What a privilege to be recognized as a son of God. When we've had such a wretched and sinful past. The father says, oh no, I'm restoring to you all the position of being a son. And we know that because he says, put shoes on his feet. Our text says, the robe, the ring, and then he says, put shoes on his feet. Shoes signified position. The father calls for these shoes to be brought for the feet of his son. Why was that important? Because only servants went barefoot in the family. Shoes were worn by sons. This boy returned home, and in his mind and in his heart, he said, I just... I want to be a mere servant and try to repay this debt that I owe to my father. But the father was determined to recognize his position as a son when he granted full and complete forgiveness. In the boy's eyes, he didn't deserve anything from the father, but the father looked at him and he said, this is my son. You know what? It's the father alone who determines the position and the worth of the children. And the application is this, in giving these three things to his son, this father was in effect telling him, the best of all that I have is yours. And now you are fully restored to sonship and even elevated in our household into a position of honor. In that culture, it was saying you're recognized as a fully grown son with all the rights and all the privileges that come with that position. And what a picture this is of what happens in salvation of a lost sinner. The parable reminds us that Christ receives sinners who are in exactly the same situation as this prodigal son, with the same gladness of forgiveness and so much more. it pictures that, that God lavishes on us His grace and His love, and God's grace triumphs over every imaginable kind of sin. And when God saves sinners, He saves the worst kind. And when He does, He instantly elevates that soul to a position of blessing and privilege. That's beyond what we could ever imagine or think. As a son of God, you're a joint heir with Jesus Christ. A joint heir of all that the Father hath. Wow. I don't deserve that. You don't deserve that. The only reason we would get it is because of the graciousness of our Heavenly Father. In verse 23, the last thing, and I'll close. Not only did He find forgiveness, not only did He find restoration, but He found great rejoicing. In verse 23, the Father says, Bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. He found when he came home with a repentant heart, he found forgiveness. He found restoration to sonship, and he found great rejoicing. The Bible says that the father said, bring hither the fatted calf. You understand what that talking about what that really means. In that culture, the fatted calf was not something that just everybody had. It's talking about and showing us that this was a really, really wealthy man, first of all. But second of all, they would have never taken and fed grain to a calf and just fed it grain and fatted it up and so on and And that's just what they would feed. No, it was something that was special. It was something that most people couldn't afford. And if there was precious grain, they would never give it to cattle. But he took this calf and set it aside. And it was set aside and fed and fatted up. And it was was there ready for a very special occasion. It was more like, it's not like, okay, this is Christmas. It's a special occasion. No, no, no. This is like a once in a lifetime event kind of a situation. And he says, bring the fatted calf. This is a -a once-in-a-lifetime event. The fatted calf was the father's way of celebrating, but it was also his way of sharing his joy with everyone around. Instead of this life that would have been wasted, this father was celebrating a life that had been redeemed and a life that had been restored a a once-in-a-lifetime kind of joy. Now later on, and Lord willing next week, when we talk about the older brother, the other son, he complains and he says, you gave this one who wasted all of your substance, you gave him the fatted calf, and I've been here and I've been serving you this whole time and you haven't even celebrated me with even a with even a goat, a kid. And here you give him a fatted calf. The point is is that this was a celebration, that it was extravagant, and it's showing us the joy of God and the joy in heaven even over one sinner. That repents. I want you to understand something though. This celebration was not about the son's behavior. Understand this. It was not at all about the son's behavior. Even his repentance, as wonderful as that was, didn't merit this kind of extravagant honor that was being thrown to him. And you say, so what is this celebration then? Well, really the whole theme of Luke chapter 15 is the sheer joy of redemption in heaven over one sinner. It's the heart of the Father. In effect, this celebration was really an honor of the Father's goodness to an undeserving son. The Father is rejoicing not because the son has done something to somehow gain back favor, but because he now has the opportunity to do the thing that he was longing to do and to forgive and to restore his son, the one who had so badly dishonored him, the one who had brought so much grief and so much pain, and he finally has the chance to do the thing that he's longing to do, to bring forgiveness and restoration. The celebration was really for the Father who gave his son life and who gave him privilege. He forgave him, he restored him, and he was sharing that kindness with everyone. And again, what a picture of the amazing Heavenly Father we have. Do you know what? There's rejoicing in heaven over a sinner who comes to repentance. Yes. But it's not about me and my repentance. It's not about me and my behavior. It's about God the Father who so graciously extends mercy to me. Amen. I think it tells us the heart of God towards sinful people. Let me just ask you a question as we close. When the story of your life is written, what's it going to say about you? Will your life be the story or the tale of a wasted life, like the prodigal son who never came back, who never returned? Or will your story be a story of a person who humbled himself, repented, and threw himself on the mercy of God his father and i would ask you where are you today are you lost in a far country wasting your substance wasting your life if you're lost you need to come to a place of repentance and there's no better time than now because god he's waiting He's looking, he wants to receive, he wants to forgive. He's eager to forgive and at the very first sign of real repentance, God's right there to wash it all away. He's waiting to put a robe on you, to put a ring on your finger and shoes on your feet, to wrap you up in his righteousness. If you're here today and you're not saved, you need to come to the same place this boy did. I am no more worthy to be called thy son. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. And at the moment of a genuine heart of repentance, God is there to forgive. If you're here today and you're saved, what you and I need to do is we need to thank God again. Thank our Father again for the gracious provision that He has given us in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's magnify the Lord. Let Him be exalted because of how good He is. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for the day, for the Word. What a great truth to show the heart of God towards undeserving sinful men who when they come in repentance God you're eager and ready you've been looking searching not only do you forgive but then you restore and you elevate in the family of God and there's great rejoicing great rejoicing over one sinner that comes to repentance What a marvelous, marvelous truth and what a picture that Jesus painted for these Pharisees. They had a faulty view of God. They had a faulty view of how favor with God is gained. It's not through good works. It's not through efforts. It's simply by grace because of His great love. And it comes to the one who's got a repentant heart. And Lord, we'll see next time as we look at the older son. He didn't love the father any more than the younger son did. And he looked to his own self-righteousness as something to be favored and something worthy. And Jesus was pointing right at the Pharisees to show them their own ignorance and their own wicked heart. Lord, I pray this morning for any who are here who have held on to some sort of self-righteousness that somehow they can earn favor with God by doing some religious things, by going to church, by doing whatever, giving some money, Lord, they see that the only way to be justified, the only way to find favor with God is through a repentant heart of faith and throwing ourselves on the mercy of God. And Lord, I pray that You draw all men to Yourself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.